Hello and welcome to LPO Offstage. I'm Yolanda Brown and this is the podcast that delves into the musical lives of the players of the London Philharmonic Orchestra, where we start off talking about classical music and end up far beyond. Today we're talking to musicians who play instruments that are sometimes in the spotlight, either playing solos or being heard above everyone else or playing loud interjections after many bars rest. I'm joined by pianist Catherine Edwards, tuba player Lisa Maclis and bass clarinet player Paul Richards. Great to have you back on the podcast, Lee and Paul, and welcome, Catherine. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good morning. (laughs) Now, this is a a really lovely subject for me because I'm always, when watching the orchestra, looking at the people that aren't sort of heard all the time and seeing what, what you're doing half the time, you know. So let's start off just introducing your various instruments that do solo at some points. So could I start with you, please, Catherine? I know you play the piano for the LPO when, when it's there and also all keyboard instruments. What other instruments would that entail? Well, the celesta, the organ, the harpsichord, occasionally a forte piano, which I love, and um, all sorts of combinations of synthesizers and electric keyboards for some contemporary music. Sounds fascinating. I have so many questions that have just brewed up. Lee, we've heard you on the podcast before. You play the tuba. How does that fit within the orchestra? Well, I mean, you have different roles, really. You can be, you're basically a bass instrument. So you are a bass end of the brass section. You provide the bass line of the brass section quite a lot of the time. You can be a different colour, addition to the double basses and cellos and bassoons. It depends how composers want to use it. And we have the odd occasion where you have a tiny one or two bar solo, which um, normally tends to happen in really, really, when the music is very miserable. (laughs) Or or, or portraying a a bear or an elephant or something, or something like that. Something big and menacing. Or death and destruction, uh, March of the Scaffolds in Berlioz, Symphony Fantastique, you know, know, just, just dreadful situations most of the time. Interesting. All right, I'm going to delve into what those solos are in a bit. I just want to bring Paul in as well. Bass clarinet. What is the role of the bass clarinet in the orchestra? I could have said exactly the same thing that Lee did, to be honest. I had the, obviously the bass section to the clarinets, but the rest of the woodwind as well. Often I'm used as a colour with the bassoons. I have quite a few solos as well, especially if you sort of go late 19th century, 20th century repertoire. There's actually quite a lot written for bass clarinet. Yeah, I say it's very similar to Lee, really. Just just a bit quieter. <laughs> <laughs> but it gives him a run for his money, I hope. That's good. Back to you, Catherine. I'm really intrigued because out of all of those descriptions, you, you've sort of spoken about so many different types of instruments there. When you as a pianist or a soloist are joining so many other musicians together, and sometimes they'll be supporting you in in your solos, what is the emotional feeling, the personal feeling of joining the orchestra? Do you enjoy it? Is it excitement? Is it nervousness? What is it? To enter that sound world is a real thrill for a pianist because we don't grow up <laughs> that way. It's been something I've discovered, you know, as a as a grown up. We're all playing together, but sometimes I'm with the strings, sometimes with the the wind, and the attack is very different. 
you're constantly adjusting that as well. And then does that also happen in location as well? Or is the piano or harpsichord or forte piano always put in the same place? Oh, if only. What a very good question. That's what, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, the piano is not always in the same place, although it's usually at the back. And because it's so big as well, you've got this huge piece of furniture in front of you and you're hidden behind it. So I've often played with Paul, who sits quite near to me. We have little solos together. I suppose the composers are trying to give the bass, the warm clarinet sound some more articulation or something, just for the colour anyway. But I have had times when I've had to play with Lee, who sits usually, unless the piano is the other side of the orchestra, very far away. The listening is can be more difficult and, of course, you're very far from the conductor and there are all sorts of people in between you. And Paul, I'm interested in the solos that you get. Are there any pieces that stand out to you as being particularly outside of what you would imagine the bass clarinet remit to be? Yes, I suppose when people think of the bass clarinet, they tend to think it just plays low at the bottom, where it is probably the most resonant. But there are composers who have written higher up. And I'm thinking of people like Tchaikovsky, for example. I mean, one of the most famous solos he ever wrote for bass clarinet is from the Manfred Symphony. That's quite high up in the bass clarinet. And because of that, it always comes up in auditions. It's, it's a really terrifying moment, you know. But it's a real test of how well you can play the instrument. He doesn't really write that low for the bass clarinet, to be honest. But it's actually similar. If you don't know Manfred, it's slightly similar to the pas de deux and the Nutcracker ballet. And you're sort of crossing the break and it's, it involves a slightly less resonant part of the instrument. So it all depends on the, well, the skill of the player and how you form your embouchure. And That's a really fascinating answer. And actually, bringing Catherine back in with the auditions, you accompany a lot of the auditions on yes. piano, right? Yeah. And so when you're, when you're playing alongside, you know, these musicians, the auditions mean so much just going yeah. after that chair. Do you have to adjust yourself to them or do you kind of play the piece as you're sort of set to play it or do you try to bring out the best in them? Yes, of course. I am constantly adjusting. Yeah. And uh, I really enjoy the role and helping people to feel safe musically I mean you know I mean yeah, yeah. there's there, there's so usually so only about do. seven minutes to to do this the other day I played the Weber clarinet concerto 30 times and oh. <laughs> uh, once in rehearsal and well, once I in audition for 15 candidates <laughs> and every time felt different of course because they're all different musicians and I love that and I also love the Weber, which is lucky. That is phenomenal. Wow. There must be a Guinness World Record on the, on the yeah, card somewhere. I should somewhere, say so. I only played the exposition. We only played the exposition. did not the whole concerto. And Lee, you have this beautiful, huge and loud instrument. How often do you get to show off what you really can do? And also how often are you told to sort of go against that and play softly and, and supportingly? I mean, the tuba can play softly. There's a lovely solo in Shostakovich's 13th symphony. In fact, uh, the movement is called Fear. You have to play this beautiful line, a pianissimo, legato, and any hint of volume, actually, you're no longer fearful, you know. You have to sort of keep it really low and quite scary, in a way. The tuba, I think, can be more scary if it's played slower and, and a, a very a low dynamic. I think that's a lovely colour. Do you mean that the music sounds scary or that it's scary to actually have to do it? 
Well, it's funny, that movement, I think it's movement number four, it's called Fear, and the next movement is called Careers. <laughs> so, I'll, so I'm always thinking, right, get this right, and then you carry on having a career. <laughs> anyway, there are times where you, you have to be very sotto voce. And Mahler one, there's a solo in Mahler's first symphony in the third movement, which is on high tessitura, and you have to do all you can to keep that, dynamic extremely low like pianissimo or to you feels like three or four p's but because of the tessitura of the instrument and the large concert halls and what's followed before you which is a muted bass and a muted bassoon it always sounds extremely loud you have to find a way like paul says with ambushes with all sorts of things imagination to try and keep that extremely quiet if you can you know it's amazing what you say lee so you know you practice you know, the solos and solos say in that sort of most lesser comfortable registers of the instrument. And you practice at home and you think it's fine, it's fine. But it's amazing when you play in context, mm. how you get caught up in the atmosphere yeah. and all of a sudden, what if you, even just breathing seems too loud. And that's <laughs> the thing with Manfred. It was like the bet noir of bass clarinet solos because it can be really terrifying. You could scare yourself witless, basically, <laughs> thinking about it. But the thing is, it's wonderful writing. It's Tchaikovsky, it's beautiful writing, but... In the context, you have these, everything dies down, mm. you've got these shimmering violins, and everybody thinks, oh, it's going to be a romantic oboe solo or a heroic horn solo. No, it's some bloke, you know, <laughs> blowing down a bass clarinet. <laughs> oh, God, you know. As Lee said, sometimes you can't play, quite, it feels like you can't play quite enough, actually. Mm. The other thing about the context is you're playing it at home, you're choosing when to breathe and when to start playing. And it's very different when you're waiting for, for a solo and you're, you have no authority over when that's going to start. You have to breathe along with the music, obviously. It's very different from playing it in the front room. Just to add to that, Catherine, you know, us, all of us in, in here, it, we've done this profession quite a few years, well over 30 years. You get to these solos and you think, why? I, I, I've tried to figure it out. Why is it so difficult? Mm. And then I thought, it's because you can never practice the moment. No. You can prepare, no. but the moment is the moment. You know, you find out really yeah. what it's all about at that particular moment. Yeah. And if you did that particular piece five nights in a row, it will feel different every single yeah. evening because, yeah. because you, can't re you can't practice that. No. Yes. That's something that just you have to deal with rather than, than prepare it. Yeah. How do you deal with that? How do you prepare for that? Because you've prepared the solo itself. But how do you prepare for being ready at that moment? Catherine? <laughs> Every time is so different. In the Glagolitic Mass by Janicek, for example, the organ has a, a whole movement to itself. It's the penultimate movement. And although it plays a couple of times during the piece earlier on, you're basically sitting there perched on the organ stool with your ankles stiffening up and, oh, uh, well all your fle you're flexing your ankles while trying to stay in the music how do you prepare for me there's a measure of hope and um confidence in the amount of work that i've done and otherwise it is about serving the music you know trying to remember this is not about you it's yes. it's about the music it's not about the conductor or the orchestra or anything it's about the music that's what can save those difficult moments for me anyway 
So poignant. And actually, you touch on the practical element of it. Lee, you spoke about embouchure and being ready. And, you know, if you've sat there with your instrument for a while, maybe not played for a while, you know, we've got temperature issues, you've got tuning issues. How do you Mm. get right into the moment then? I think, like Catherine said, you know, you don't really think of those things. You know how it goes. If you've done your prep, you know how it's supposed to go. And at some point, you're servant to the music. Like a teacher of mine once said years ago, Santa Cecilia's most bizarre servant. I mean, you just have to do what you can to play the piece. It's your job, right? You've got to play the music. I just want to add a little bit to this, which is on our instruments, if you're a flute player, a clarinet player, or one of the principal players for sure, or, or, or the other players, in a two and a half hour concert, you might have, I don't know, 30 or 40 solos. Mm. and you're present all the time when you're playing. The difficulty on our instruments is the fact that you you don't have 30 or 40 solos, mm. or you might have mm. four bars. So if you played a 15-minute solo every time you did a concert, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, the fact is that we have to just... It's like a merry-go-round that's going really fast, and you've got to jump, got to jump on up. and off, you know, without, without without hurting yourself. And you're not going to be thinking about, oh, I'm going to hurt myself. You just have to do it. Jump you in. know, you just have to jump in and, and play the music. And at the end of the day, you know, if it's right, nobody notices, you know, and, that, and that's the way it should be. And that's the way it should be. It's a bit like wallpaper. You go in a house and it's got lovely wallpaper and you don't notice it. The moment you see a tear in it, you think, oh, that wallpaper is not very good. We cherish you. We cherish the sound and the textures that you bring. Paul, with the bass clarinet, what led you to that instrument? And did you ever go through the avenue of the clarinet and decide? How did you get there? I went to Cheatham's in Manchester. My clarinet teacher, Graham Turner, his name, he was also the bass clarinet player, the Halle. And when I got to the end of my time, he sort of suggested the school, actually was school, did have their own instrument I didn't own one at the time and they were doing a piece and they said we need someone to play bass clarinet do you want to do it and I said okay because you, you go to these schools music schools thinking you're the probably the greatest thing since sliced bread you know I think I want to be the next Mike Collins well <laughs> so many better clarinet players than me but anyway yeah so he su- suggested it and um after a couple of little disasters, I thought, actually, I quite like this instrument, really. So, And then when I went to college, well, you have two. I had my main clarinet teacher, but also I, I studied with my predecessor, very distinguished clarinet player called Stephen Trier. He was in the LPO for many, many years, and he taught me as well. From about the age of 20, that seemed to be my sort of career path, really. Mm. When I got to college, my dad had just bought me a second-hand instrument. And when I got to college, it was my first year, nobody knew me, but I was considered a specialist because I had my own instrument. <laughs> you know. Now, I mean, it's come so far in these days. I think the last 30 years, there's been a real interest in the bass clan and its repertoire, and composers have been inspired to write for it. I should say mainly for people who can demonstrate like extended techniques yes. like multiphonic slap-tonguing and so-and-so. But, yeah, I say I've always, since about the age of... 16, 17, I've always been playing the bass clarinet, really, you know, so... It's a bit, beautiful, yeah, know. beautiful sound. And so do you play the clarinet still, or it's just bass clarinet? Sadly, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> as you know, well, you probably know, as you know, Yolanda, of course, the clarinet has got a very 
extensive family. Yes. I mean, it's not just the bass clarinet, of course. You've got the, the contra bass clarinet, which is like, plays an octave low in the, the bass clarinet, which is a splendid instrument. I mean, I haven't got one myself, but I should be used it a couple of times the last season. We did some music by the composer Danny Elfman, and uh, he's written a lot for that instrument in his film scores. So, yeah, and then you've got the instruments in between, like the basset horn. So, you know, you're asking Catherine what instrument she played, aside from piano. Well, I tend to play instruments sort of south of the clarinet, basically. So just take me through those one more time, if you can. Yeah, so you've got, after the clarinet, of course, you've got the basset horn. You've got an alto clarinet, which looks a little bit like a basset horn. It's pitched in E-flat. The basset horn's pitched in F. For those who don't really know the clarinet family, basset horn's, of course, used for... Mozart used the basset horn for his requiem. And Richard Strauss, actually, in some of his operas, he used the basset horn, which is a lovely instrument. And then you've got the bass clarinet. Then you've got a contra alto, which plays an octave and a fifth below the bass clarinet. Sorry, a fifth below the bass clarinet. And then finally, you've got the contra bass clarinet. And then above the clarinet, of course, you've got the E-flat clarinet, which is a truly awful instrument. I can't stand it. <laughs> Squeals and God knows what. And then you've got one called the A-flat sopranino, which is a tiny thing, really. In fact, I don't think an adult's fingers are sort of small enough to be able to play it, really. It's, it's like, well, it's about sort of 10 inches or something. It's a tiny little thing, but occasionally composers do write for it. And Lee, is it just tuba or do you go into other realms as well? Well, it's just tuba, but there are different types of tuba, same as the bass clarinet, really. I mean, you have um, two types of tubas. You have a bass tuba, which are pitched in F or an E-flat, and you have a contrabass tuba, which are pitched in C or B-flat. And a, and a tubist needs to play one type of bass tuba and one type of contrabass tuba. So, for example, Wagner's Ring is scored for a contrabass tuba, which is, uh, so it's a much deeper, weightier sound. And then if you go into Tchaikovsky symphonies or uh, Berlioz or, or uh, you know, then you, you need to use a smaller instrument. Mm. And then above that, of course, you've got the, the tenor tuba, which is a euphonium, which is played by trombone players mainly because it has the same mouthpiece right. as a trombone. Yes. Although tuba players do play a euphonium, I can actually play it, but I sound so duff on it. My colleagues to my right, they sound much better than I do, so they do it. And then you have all sorts of baritones and, and tenor horns, and which look like tiny, tiny tubers, you know. But in the orchestra, we mainly use a bass tuba and a contrabass tuba. And at times, can you be asked to switch between these instruments during yeah, one concert? Yeah, like well? in one symphony, in a Brooklyn Seventh Symphony, uh, the first movement is called for bass tuba. The second movement is called for contrabass tuba, because that's homage to Wagner. Third movement is back to bass tuba. The fourth movement is contrabass tuba. I mean, most conductors just see tuba. And it, you can actually, you can actually, if you've got quite a hefty low register, you can actually do the whole thing on one instrument. But purists would say, you know, it shouldn't be done. Uh, like in German orchestras, they would definitely use two, or the Austrian orchestras, or... American orchestras would probably just use the big one for the whole lot. Yes, yes. Because they like things big over there. And for us, we might, we might not. You know, it depends what uh, the conductor wants or 
what, what hole you're in. You know, you could be in a very boomy acoustic and then you can just get away with using a smaller one. A smaller one. No, yeah. fascinating. So much happening behind the scenes, you see. And Catherine, you outlined uh, some really in- interesting keyboard instruments that you would be asked to play, but I'm most intrigued by the organ at the Royal Festival Hall. What is it like playing that? First of all, the sound of it and the feeling of it. But then also practically, with your back to the conductor, maybe within the audience or within the chorus, what is it like, the experience of playing the organ? It does feel distant, but you get used to it. In fact, in the festival hall, that the organ there is really quite close to the orchestra compared to many other halls where you're way up in a loft. The mirrors in the festival hall are little hand mirrors and it's always a problem getting them in position, especially if there's a choir singing. They're very cooperative, the London Philharmonic Chorus, always having to leave little channels between them so that I can still see the conductor. But then you never know. When they sit down again in the concert, they'll sing the first movement, for example. The second movement might be a a solo. So they've sat down and then they stand up again and suddenly you, you know, however hard they try, it only takes a couple of inches and the conductor's obscured. So that can be a point of anxiety. Yeah. But yes, yeah, sound-wise, it can be absolutely thrilling playing the organ. You're coming in at the end of Mahler Two. You've sat there through all that beautiful, amazing music, and then you oh, come in at the climax with full organ. It's really thrilling. Yeah. Has there ever been a time that you can remember? <laughs> Catherine already knows where I go. Has there ever been a time where it hasn't gone quite a plan, and there's been a stumble or a fall or a calamity? Oh, per se. numerous times. <laughs> yeah. Tell me, Paul, please enlighten oh, me. Oh God! Oh, I'm getting coming out in a cold sweat. Now, <laughs> I'm so about. sorry. Oh <laughs> uh, well, yeah, of course we're all human, you know. About it's about 25 years ago at Glyndebourne, we did an opera by Verdi called Simon Boccanegra. It's typical Verdi. He may write, say, one solo or one little two-minute passage, or an obligato for bass clarinet, and that's it for the whole opera. Then you can creep off. And we'd done this, and we were well into the run. There's one solo that appears at the end of this huge climactic section, and there's a pause, a silence, and then you just come in. You creep in on... Well, you know what I mean when I say throté on the bass clarinet. And on my instrument, it's quite a resonant note. And you play this little sort of little tune on in A minor. You play it twice. The first time you creep in pianissimo. And that's fine because you can like hoover in. You can just fade in. It's quite nice. But then you have to play it fortissimo with a real accent on that this particularly resonant A. On one performance, it came to it. I played the quiet section. That was absolutely fine. There's a moment's pause, and then you come in, fortissimo on the A. And just as I was doing that, I think one of the fiddle players dropped their bow or something, and it just put me off. And I think my embouchure must have altered or something, and I blew down the bass. And basically, all hell was let <laughs> loose. It's, it's this almighty squeak. I think I took the roof off Glyndebourne, you know. But the thing is, it just you have to carry on playing the solo, but I, I wanted to run away, oh, basically, yeah. you know. That's the thing. You know, we're talking about the preparation before you play. You don't play for ages. And you think, make sure the reed's not too dry, it's moist. Get your embouchure in position. And I found I can be very easily distracted. Now, I was on this occasion. And I just, I don't know, must have altered my embouchure or something. I didn't think, or I wasn't focused. And it just came steaming in. <laughs> it's like, oh, God. I'm right it's, there with you. I, I never, ever want to play that piece again. Oh, and you, so you haven't come across that piece again since? 
No, and if it does, I'll take it off. (laughs) (laughs) Find me a dip. (laughs) We are indeed all human and a squeak is a good thing. Part of my sound now. Just embrace it. (laughs) (laughs) Lee, how about for you and the tuba? Oh, goodness me. Yeah, there's been, you know... (laughs) There's been quite a few. Uh, where do I start? No, I mean, the time, there's an element of risk, isn't there, playing these instruments where you've got to create your own resonance. You imagine the note and you think the note and you're being the note and then you play it and you totally miss it, you know. And that, <laughs> But that's part of playing, you know, an instrument, I think. I can't swear on this, can I? This, every now and again, you're going along quite nicely and I call it, there's a, a sudden rush of something to the brain yes yes unexplained you know you're playing along nice and all of a sudden you just for that split second brain fog you know and yes. then you think i can't believe i just did that well i did so that's that let's move on <laughs> but 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 there's also that i tell you one really my most embarrassing story i think as a professional player so this isn't to do with lpr i was booked as a professional to go and help out a, a band <laughs> All their tuba players had gone sick. So, and I arrived 10 minutes before this concert, somewhere up in Suffolk, for this band concert as the only tuba player. They picked me up from Liverpool Street in a car and drove me all the way to this place. And at the time, it was quite a long time ago, maybe 30 years ago, they said, we'll give you £50 in cash. And I thought, that'd be brilliant. You know, I'll get driven there and we'll give you a lift back to Liverpool Street. Can you do it? I thought, great, I'll come and do this. <laughs> I got all the way up there. I was dressed nicely. I had my dicky bow on and I was ready for this. And I thought, I'm going to show off a bit being the only professional here amongst amateurs. And I lifted up my tuba case and there was no mouthpiece. Whoa! <laughs> Oh, oh, God. Oh, no. <laughs> and, and then I thought, uh, um, you know, What did you um, do? Uh, well, I panicked, obviously. I completely panicked. Hot and cold, hot and cold, hot and cold, thinking, oh, my God, they've just driven me all the way up from Liverpool Street to here to save the day. There's no bass, there's no other bass line. There's no mouthpiece. So there was a trombone player, and I, I sort of whispered to him, I said, I suppose you've got a spare trombone mouthpiece to you. He said, yes, I do. Of course, the trombone mouthpiece is half the size of the tuba mouthpiece. Yes. So I put it in the shank, and he was rattling about in there. I thought, no, he's on so I got sellotape and I sellotaped it around the shank whacked it in there so it fitted and proceeded to split every single note of course to everyone else to everybody else I was the professional they had, they had no idea what's going on it's meant to be like this and I literally I, I was mispitching everything by an octave oh a fifth God. you know and for the whole concert anyway needless to say it was a very quiet journey back to the <laughs> Did you give them their fifty pounds back, Lee? Do you yes. know? I, I, I did. I honestly, I offered. I <laughs> offered. <interesting>. I offered. <laughs> it was too late. You know, oh. they wouldn't take anything back. But honestly, I just thought from that day onwards, whatever instrument I'm playing. There's a mouthpiece in it already, and I don't even take it out. That is brilliantly. So ever since then, I've, I own like three or four instruments. All of them have a mouthpiece in there. Perfect. And actually, there's probably a spare in the pocket somewhere as well. Absolutely. That was so bad. That oh, was so bad. Bless you. <laughs> Oh, thank you for sharing that. That's a really good behind the scenes story. Catherine, I'm going to have to get one from you, please. I learned a lesson from this too, which is never only turn up at the interval if you're playing the organ. Oh, no. We were doing the prom in the Albert Hall. 
with Vladimir Yurovsky. And I got to the Albert Hall at eight o'clock in the morning, sorted out all the registrations and wrote the stop combinations that I needed from loud to soft. And we were doing Sprach Zarathustra. The first entry is, there's a long crescendo on a low note to start with. And then it has this huge uh, 2001 chord. I wrote all of the registrations in pencil, you know, one of those like three or four B pencils on my part. And we did the rehearsal and it all worked perfectly. And what you do when you have a quick change of stops on the organ, when you have to go suddenly from one sound to another, is you, you put that combination on a general piston. It's all remembered by the organ behind the piston. So right. the combination of stops for the first chord was on one and then etc. So I wrote the general pistons on the part and arrived at the interval, well, before the interval, but at the interval, I went up to the organ and it had been locked up since the morning rehearsal. So um. I'm, I'm running down several, well, two complicated flights with a lot of public around, trying to find somebody to unlock it, which took a while. And by the time it was unlocked, it was just before the second half started. And the first piece was not the Strauss. I was in a panic. So I didn't turn. There's a specific organ light that comes on above the music stand. I was panicked, didn't think. We started the piece, it was all fine. Then there's a crescendo, after which there's a subito pianissimo, where you have to do a very quick change of stops and you accompany just two violins playing a very soft duet and you're just holding an E-flat octave very softly. And it was at the top of the page and because the organ light wasn't on, the way that the light from the hall was shining on the page is, if you remember, sometimes you can't see pencil. It's obliterated by the reflection on the lead. And I couldn't see anything and I was twisting and turning my neck and head trying to see what I'd written. And in the split second that I had to do this thing, I'd thought, well, it must be number one because the piece starts softly. So I pressed number one, which is, of course, the combination of stops ready for the ginormous <laughs> chord at the beginning. <laughs> I don't know if you two remember that occasion. Yeah. 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 Oh, yes. This is, on that this is why I have to tell this story, because there will be people listening to this podcast who will know this happened. And if I don't tell the story, they'll think, hmm, she, <laughs> she's kept that one quiet. Tried to get away with it. And... It was absolutely awful. Yeah, it felt terrible. So it came out with a blasting sound a blasting on what was a sensitive moment. A blast of sound accompanying two little violins, yeah. As the review, Edward Seckerson said, what was that cosmic fart from the organ? Oh, my goodness! <laughs> and I think that describes it perfectly. <laughs> oh, my goodness! On <laughs> any other instrument, a half-second mistake probably wouldn't be heard or it certainly wouldn't be as earth shattering as the full organ in the Albert Hall. <laughs> <laughs> oh, on that splendid note, uh, <laughs> the loud one. Uh, thank you all for sharing with me uh, what you love about your instruments. Also, some of the disasters that happen because we are human. I know that that will resonate really well with our listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Well, that's it for now from LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. Thanks so much to Lisa Marklis, Paul Richards and Catherine Edwards for sharing their experiences of playing instruments that are sometimes in the spotlight. Thanks for listening and please join me for the next episode of LPO Offstage. The LPO's principal conductor, Ed Gardner, will be here to give an insight into his plans for next season. 